0: Nothing is more striking when you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a kind of a a burnt imprint, and you're told that that was the body of a three-year-old child.
1: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine Smith. And on this episode, we're focused on the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons with former Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Lloyd Axworthy. He was one of 56 signatories on a recent open letter calling on countries around the world, including Canada, to sign the treaty. The letter reads To date, our countries have opted not to join the global majority in supporting this treaty, but our leaders should reconsider their positions. We cannot afford to dither in the face of this existential threat to humanity. The treaty was adopted at the UN with the support of 122 states in July 2017. It has now been ratified by the requisite 50 countries and is set to enter into force on January 22, 2021. But Canada remains on the sidelines. Now the chair of the World Refugee Council, Lloyd Axworthy held a number of cabinet positions over the course of a 27 year parliamentary career, and as Foreign Affairs Minister, he led global efforts to ban landmines. Lloyd, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Real pleasure, you.
1: Thank you for asking me. Recently, you helped lead, I think, efforts towards a joint statement, Jean Chrétien, John Turner, Ban Ki-moon, a number of signatories from different countries and and really notable backgrounds. Why is that letter so important and and why were you leading efforts to put it together?
0: Well, it's important because I think the uh, initiative on the treaty banning nuclear weapons is really almost the only initiative underway to try to provide a alternate paradigm and alternate narrative about what we're doing. And I think Canada has historically going back to 1945 been a leader arguing that the nuclear threat is not something that is purely an issue for nuclear states. It's an issue for humanity, for humankind, because the risk is just uh, global. It's universal. It's, It's existential. What's been fascinating to me is that in 1945, just at the emergence of the nuclear era, Canada was one of the few countries in the world that had the capability of being a nuclear power. We had been involved in the Manhattan Project. One of our scientists, gentlemen from my home province of Manitoba, was head of their weapons design system. We had major stocks of uranium. We knew the technology. In other words, we had all the components necessary to become a nuclear power. And it was a decision by the Osama uh, government involving people like uh, Mike Pearson and, and others. It said, after a couple of days meeting in cabinet, they came out and put a resolution in front of parliament, which was completely uh, endorsed. And since that time, we've been a voice for nuclear restraint, nuclear control, and nuclear elimination, because we, we see it not as another military device but one that has the potential for massive destruction. And why why we've changed our position, well, I know why. When the change came about, it was with the Harper government. But what's disappointing is our own government hasn't made a break with that and gone back to the more important role because – Uh, We were an important voice in all these discussions.
1: Stronger advocacy and participation in that treaty would not only benefit the world, but it would be consistent then with our history of advocacy and and really the history of of our values.
0: Yeah, plus our own security. There's always been this dynamic between nuclear states and non-nuclear states. But what, what our decision historically was about is that we decided that you don't measure your greatness or your power by nuclear weapons. I mean, that is a false metric. It's a dangerous metric. As a result, I think we we had a, a very important role that also led into a whole number of other arms disarmament issues based on that basic fundamental premise of a humanitarian objective, not a military objective. Not only are we not participating, but we're also being almost a kind of cheerleader for the nuclear powers. That's not the side we should be on. Right now, the, the importance of the treaty, it shouldn't be seen as some kind of opposition. It should be seen really as a corollary to the efforts to put nuclear weapons under control. The description of the nuclear system is going through such a major change. It's no longer Soviet Union the United States. You've now got not only the China and France and Germany, you've got North Korea, you've got Israel, you've got India, you've got Pakistan. And just to give you an example, when I was foreign minister, we led the charge when uh, both Pakistan and India uh, made a decision to go nuclear, we led the charge around the world to try to apply sanctions and to oppose what was going on. And there was a lot of pushback, as you might imagine, but nevertheless, we did it. So when I hear people say, well, we're NATO members, we can't do it. Look at Norway, one of our kind of friends in arms when it comes to that, provided the original investment in the nuclear treaty ban. They're they're a NATO member. They didn't feel that somehow they were limited. We were using a lot of, I think, putting it bluntly, phony baloney arguments that aren't based either in history or in fact.
1: Your letter says we must show courage and boldness and join the treaty. And for those who are coming to this issue for the first time, what does it mean specifically for Canada to join the treaty, both what steps do we need to take and what does it mean for then subsequently? What, what, is there anything that Canada then has to do?
0: We have to sign the treaty and then ratify it. And there's, we have to go through a more complicated process because we weren't in on the first trance really early the generation. But here's the important point. You know, when people say, well, what's the point of doing this? Well, I remind them of the example of the landmine treaty everybody at the time said that here was a major military weapon used by virtually all all countries in the world. Uh, We, along with 10 or 12 other countries, a very strong civil society movement, international institutions like the Red Cross, we came together. And when I announced that we were going to invite nations of the world to come to Ottawa to sign a treaty, people thought I was crazy. There was a lot of skepticism and, you know, the conservative critics and so-called experts were saying, well, that will never happen. It did happen. And why? It's because people realize they have to set some norms and standards. I was just on a radio broadcast earlier this morning where we were acknowledging the fact that the Falkland Islands are now mine-free after 20 years. And that was, you know, so 20,000 mines have been eliminated. And The interviewer is saying Now people can go to the beaches. People can walk in the fields. They're not afraid of these hidden weapons. And so that's what I mean by some courage and conviction and some leadership. And we basically saw this as something that we had a particular pathway to do. And we took the lead. And even now, the the landmine treaty is a norm that constrains everybody else. The only breakthrough on that is that the Trump administration this year decided to Regress their commitment not to produce or distribute landmines. Line I'm pretty sure that will be uh, overturned by the Biden administration. But there is, a, you know, there's a question of how do you set standards, and what, what our problem is right now is that the standards that were with a lot of effort put into place in the Cold War when there was just two major protagonists is now totally uh, convoluted because you now have a nuclear system of eight or nine participants, and probably three or four or more. Brazil and others are thinking to get in. And once that happens, any effective deterrent is is gone because it's not only a global issue, it becomes regional, Pakistan, India.
1: So this is one of NATO's objections and and what Canada ultimately passively supports, I would say. In your letter, you say our countries should reject any role for nuclear weapons in our defense. And what NATO might say is if other countries are unwilling to stand down, and right now the treaty is only signed by non-nuclear states... So it might be that we could all live in a world if we were all to stand down. But until such time as the North Koreas or the Pakistans or China, as an example, if, if they are unwilling to stand down, then we do need uh, continued use as a deterrent.
0: Well, I think of the case of NATO. I mean, that's one of those conventional wisdoms. We challenge that, and as, as of other countries, particularly when the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Commons, which was then chaired by Bill Graham, and I was in Foreign Affairs at the time. And we discussed what should we do. Well, Bill undertook a cross country discussion with Canadians on all sides and came back with the conclusion that Canadians wanted to take some activist position on controlling and injecting the use of nuclear weapons. But the starting point, because we're good incrementalists as liberals, the starting point would be to forego NATO's commitment to a first strike, which is very provocative. It means all the other countries, the Russians and the Chinese and others, saying, well, NATO still holds on to this first strike principle, and that means that it simply engenders further kind of weapons development. If you pull back from that, all of a sudden, you lower the temperature and you lower the the, the threshold substantially. That, I think, is really important, and that's something we should be doing. I mean, we shouldn't just simply hide under a, a kind of a blanket notion that we have to show fealty. You know, we're an independent country. And we are, and this may sound a little kind of almost Pollyannish, but we were the first country to forego the use of nuclear weapons. That gives us a certain kind of moral standing. And I think it's a moral standing that we now, as we deal with the global threats.
1: And one objection that I've heard from Global Affairs, which presumably is a position of NATO as well, that it's not helpful for that normative standard to be set. By non nuclear states and without the active participation of nuclear states, that this is, in some cases, they argue, a detrimental project rather than a helpful one. What, what would you say to that objection?
0: I've heard that argument a hundred times. I've heard it when I was there. I mean, there were, you know, there were kind of fairly hard line people in the ministry and in the government and in the so called defense establishment. They're much more concerned, I think, about the notion of being palsy with great powers as opposed to being a more independent voice on these things. And I think what what's clearly the case is that you shouldn't be seeing nuclear states and non-nuclear states as opponents. We're all in it together. We have as much a right to be part of an effort to put restraints on it. And I think that would be the beginning, that the more this treaty gets some traction, the more the, the nuclear states are going to have to start thinking. Because right now, as you know, Nathaniel, all the arms control Arrangements that took place between 1969 and in the early 2000s are now being shredded. Now, maybe with Biden coming back in, there might be some more progress in there. But we shouldn't be relying upon the Americans in, in this case. They're a nuclear power. We should be saying we we have to stand up for the rest of the, the world who aren't nuclear powers but would be decimated if it took place. And therefore, I think we have a specific role as Canadians. Sure, we can we be part of there. We're we're allies. We. We participate in NATO missions in Kosovo and Libya and in other places, but it doesn't mean to say that we should be stuck on a concept that was generated in the Cold War, even though we're under very different conditions. What is increasing of concern is that some of the nuclear states are engaging in a major modernization and redefinition of their nuclear arsenals. They're going to make the weapons much more targeted, much more sort of laser-like. And they're saying, well, that means that we can use them more. Well, I, I don't care. Once you start using a nuclear weapon, you're in to a septic tank. And I think we've got to really be careful. And we need voices like Canadian voices to be able to kind of provide some pushback on that. And to say, let's nuclear states and non-nuclear states come together and work out or what are the, the bridges and the shared interests on in this stuff. But right now there is no effort at any form of arms control, mitigation restraint of any kind. This would put pressure on them.
1: And it is odd when you look at the Canadian history, the fact that we haven't subscribed ourselves to the deterrence theory that we have, as you say, foregone the use of nuclear weapons as a state ourselves, and we wouldn't have to drop our NATO membership by taking a different position on this particular topic. So just for the sake of playing nice, we do seem to be taking a position that is inconsistent with our values is going back to Bill Graham's consultation.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't use the word being nice. It's being compliant. We're not simply prepared to take some steps that aren't part of the conventional wisdoms. And I think in this case, we're we are probably putting at some risk our own security, because if there's a nuclear exchange, we pay the price for it. Uh, the missiles come over our country. I mean, I don't have to get into all the mechanics, but we are so far advanced in a. The- destructive potential of nuclear weapons. But while we're dealing with COVID and we're dealing with climate change, I just wrote an article that will be printed in January in the volume Canada and the world, where I'm saying that there's four horsemen of the apocalypse, COVID, climate, corruption, and the nuclear threat. And these things have a confidence they they interlace with each other. And therefore, we have to begin thinking of how we start acting and developing a different kind of international system of standards, of agency, of being able to Come to grips with these major threats because yeah. right now, you know, there was a degree of stability, Soviet Union and the United States, based on mad you know, nuclear deterrent. That's not working anymore when you've got, you know, when you've tripled the number of participants and you're also tripping them into a volatile situation. Look, Pakistan, India is a, is a clear example of that. And do you really think that, say, if, China started making moves on Taiwan, that we would use nuclear weapons to respond to that. The fundamental premise behind that is that a nuclear weapon is just another weapon a little bit more powerful. It's not. It, it has a, a kind of dimension, all of its own, in terms of its capacity to really uh, destroy the world we live in.
1: And the comparison to COVID is actually an interesting one because, I mean, it's easy to think now in the middle of a pandemic that we should have taken precautions and we should have taken zoonotic diseases more seriously and we should have invested more in public health efforts as a matter of prevention. And there are reports out from the United Nations Environment Program on preventing a future pandemic and a one health approach. And here's an example where similar to a, a pandemic, even though it doesn't look like there might be in the foreseeable future a consequence, when it is upon you, the consequences are so disastrous that we need that level of prevention. That's right.
0: That's right. And, and, and if I could kind of uh, use my position as a little fogey.
1: <laughs> Please do
0: to a member of parliament who clearly shows an interest. I think that where you start with is that you don't have to come up with flags waving on the barricade just say, "Look, why don't we have uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee begin to look at our posture on this issue? Let's do a review of the Bill Graham Report." NATO requires you to be a supporter of first use strike. All those things are, you know, they simply they fall into ruts. And I think you know we're in the combat world now, and the COVID is requiring us to take a brand new look you know the old the book that came out in 2007 on the, on the Black Swans, where all of a sudden you're faced with a societal change in which none of the old playbooks or manuals apply. I think we're in that situation right now. And so it's time I think and this is to me as a real a role where Parliament can play. I'm, I'm deeply concerned that increasingly Parliament is being shrunk on its capacity not just to do oversight to be an agency of policy. And I think as someone who was a parliamentarian for 27 years, I just believe that, that that's our vehicle for democracy to be represented. And the more you shrink its reach, and I think it's time for parma- parliamentarians to kind of take uh, views of their own to, and to do it on a bipartisan level. See where you can find support with the other parties. You've got a new leader of the Green who seems, I mean, she worked for the International Criminal Court. I mean, she knows international human rights. There's a whole range of those kinds of issues, which I think there's a much stronger base for consensus building through parliament. And it isn't simply dictated by what I call the kind of foot-dragging bureaucracy that we have, as, as well as some of the people in government who are not really thinking innovatively, nor understanding our history, are saying, what well, is the What's in the security interest of Canada?
1: And in terms of what the ultimate outcome would be, signing a treaty is the goal. And in some respects, changing NATO's policies would be a significant step as well, if that were achievable in the longer term.
0: And the thing there's a couple of other areas, I think we have to be very observant and cautious about what's happening in space these days. At what point does it become a staging ground for nuclear weapons? Same thing in the Arctic. There's a lot of military competition building up in our Arctic area. Russians are putting massive amounts of money to enhance their military position. The Chinese are interested. The Americans are interested. So we're the one Arctic power. I have to say, uh, we should demilitarize the Arctic. That doesn't mean to say you don't have armed forces, because clearly, there's a lot of basic security issues. They should have blue helmets on and white helmets and green helmets. To begin providing response to the kind of major volatility that's going on in that area, those are the kind of things that we have to say. But there's no question in my mind that, particularly with the increasing, I guess you'd call it, Manichean division between China and the West. I mean, we're now recreating. I went through it. I lived through it. I, I was, you know, I was growing up in the in, in the Cold War era, and we don't want to repeat that. And I think we're now into a situation where the drums are beating to kind of say they're the bad, bad guys. They're certainly not good guys. But we also learned that you know, we had to talk to the Russians during the Cold War, too.
1: So much of this conversation in the background, the focus is the dire consequences of, of nuclear conflict. And I instead want to focus on potential reasons for optimism. So former Senator Douglas Roche, writing for the Canadian Network to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, wrote this on October 31st. He said, in a subtle diplomatic move... The government of Canada has ceased its opposition and now acknowledges the reason for the treaty, which will enter into force on January 22nd, 2021. And I guess he tracks through the history where The Prime Minister called the treaty useless in 2017. Global Affairs called it premature at one point. And now Global Affairs recognizes or acknowledges the widespread frustration with the pace of global efforts towards nuclear disarmament, which clearly motivated the negotiation and Canada unequivocally supports nuclear disarmament. Former Senator Roche is clearly optimistic about what seems to be a fairly subtle change, all things considered. But at the same time, we can point to now President-elect Biden saying during the campaign, I will work to us closer to a world without nuclear weapons. And if American policy influences us or has influenced us so very much on this topic, maybe that's reason for optimism too. But in your view, how optimistic should we be?
0: Well, I think I'm a little bit from Manitoba. Show me the meat. Where, where's the evidence to back up this subtle new approach? Uh, maybe it's worth a question in the House. Has Canada shifted its position? Let's ask Mr. Champagne if, if that's your way around. And if so, is it something that will not We'll now make public, because it certainly hasn't been a public statement of any kind. Are we prepared to say it's time that we got back in the game, that we actually started attending the negotiations, and we we started reaching out to those who are involved and determine you know, what are the uh, pros and cons? Have a debate amongst Canadians, for goodness sake. Part of the thing that I always rebelled against when I was in foreign affairs was the idea that it's a closed shop and everything is kind of kept cloistered. And I think uh, one of the things that has to happen in the in this day and age, you have to broaden and deepen the level of participation in these issues. And that's the way I think the Foreign Affairs Committee work in, in uh, 96, 97 was really important because they brought Canadians into the fold. By the way, our own party. I mean, I, I'm a liberal. You're a liberal. We held forums across the country on things like the United Nations, human rights, nuclear disarmament. It was a party initiative. It wasn't sort of, top-down, here's what you believe. It was an effort to say, as a party, we should be out there talking to constituents, talking to people, getting expert advice. And I think that's something that isn't nearly as forward as it should be. This period of COVID has really been a prism that's reflected a lot of light on issues that we've kind of not been putting on the radar. And I think right now, where people are kind of increasingly deeply concerned about survival, and security in in the utmost human way. It's time to start planning for these things and saying, it's not just a question of getting a vaccine and uh, making sure it's distributed equitably. It's not a question of how do we also deal with the impact on climate? How do we deal with the nuclear issue to make sure that we're not gonna, if we're trying to get better security on epidemics, we're not gonna risk it by having a higher level of threat or risk uh, coming through nuclear, the the new nuclear age. And that to me, I, I guess if I could leave a point the fundamental changes taking place in the nuclear order right now are really quite all seismic in their impact. Not just the new people, the new technologies, the new weaponization, and the breakdown of all the previous controls and standards. If that isn't a call to wake up, it should be.
1: Which speaks to the reason that now more than ever, Canada shouldn't be a passive observer To NATO policies, but should be taking a stand and and trying to move the needle on on the world stage. And you'd think much was made of the prime minister, of of our party's promise that Canada is back. And you'd think Canada being back, we'd be back in this conversation too.
0: Oh, I mean, I I assume, but it it hasn't happened. And I think there's been a kind of, uh, if I have a critique, and it's not of the government per se, it's just that Ottawa itself, that the kind of political bureaucratic class aren't really engaged internationally as they should be, uh, because it's always uh, well here's domestic and here's international. No, I think right now the, the uh, integration of what's happening in in the different spheres is a fundamental reality. We have to think differently than simply saying we we can have silver bullets to handle certain kind of silo issues. To me, it's a it's a little bit more comprehensive. But that doesn't mean to say that we should be overwhelmed or flummoxed by it. I think we we start looking and, and pick our places. I mean, I think Canada has a special role in human rights. I think it has a special role in nuclear disarmament. It has a special role that was pioneered by Justin's father in terms of providing bridges and connections with uh, development. And I think, uh, I mean, because I have a special interest in refugee, uh, refugee work, because I, I chair the Refugee Council, there's an area that we have real leadership possibilities, and uh, you know we've got some good ministers there. You know, Karina Gould and uh, Mendocino are people who are taking a real interest in this, but I think it's got it maybe uh, more parliamentary support for them give them better perch to work from.
1: And when you look back over an incredible parliamentary career, and you've been a liberal for a very long time. But I was reading in your Wikipedia that you became involved in liberal politics after a speech from Mike Pearson. Mike Pearson. But briefly in the nineteen sixties, you flirted with the NDP because Pearson called for American bomark nuclear warheads to be allowed on Canadian soil. So this question of of nuclear politics has loomed large in your life even before your parliamentary career.
0: Yeah, I, I was a graduate student down in the United states, but to me that was a break uh, with what I thought was was the definition he expressed when I was 17 years old in a high school in Winnipeg. That Canada has a particular role to play in, in making sure that we protect people, that we talk about disarmament, that in fact you know that. Uh, one of the things that the that Pearson proposed, I think it was 1948 or something, that the, that the International Atomic Energy Commission should basically take responsibility for all nuclear weapons. It shouldn't be managed by individual countries. Now, everybody thought, oh, my God, that breaks the whole Treaty of Westphalia. Good. It's about time the Treaty of Westphalia was kind of put to sleep. It's not really working well anymore. Anyway, you're right. Uh, I mean, I have a long history. I was very much involved in the uh, the nuclear Demonstrations of the of the late fifties and certainly into the sixties, and I've always been. It's not because I've got some kind of obsession. I just think it's one hell of a risk. And I'll, I'll tell you, I think probably that was confirmed to, to when, I, when I retired from parliament in two thousand. I was asked to go to Japan to attend the ceremonies in Hiroshima, recognizing the, the first nuclear use militarily. I got to tell you, Daniel, it it was just so all encompassing. I mean, nothing is more striking. When you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a kind of a a burnt imprint, and you're told that that was the body of a three-year-old child, you just realize just how much is at stake on these issues, and uh, to the degree that we can add a voice to it, that we can, and because we're liberals, we're not we don't have grand designs, but we have to say, particularly in this new nuclear age, we have to redesign. What are the constraints? What are the guardrails? What are the measures that are necessary to diminish the potential, the possibility? a nuclear exchange taking place and particularly to limit the nature of the weapons themselves which are becoming ever more destructive
1: and you've mentioned this already but there are very few people i think in canadian politics now or even our our past politics who would have such insight where you really led efforts and helped bring other countries into the fold on on the question of of landmines and there is a a very strong parallel there and many of the same arguments That could be brought to bear against Canadian participation and pushing back against nuclear weapons could have been made at the time to say, well, don't bother. You're not going to be successful. The countries that want to have them will have them. And there's nothing we can do.
0: In fact, that was the argument at the time. And the the point is, we had such compelling evidence that the landmines, the major victims were 90 percent civilians. And that was a weapon that kept on killing, kept on killing decades and centuries after the conflicts were over. And, and so, but we were able to put together a political coalition, a political network that was able to achieve. Now, it may have been different. There's not the same kind of constraints that we have now. I, I think the attacks on, on global liberalism and some uh, are underway, but I think we're now pushing back. I think the Biden election is the first kind of turning of the wheel in the other direction against the kind of uh, buffoonery of, of the Trumps and Bolsonaro's and Putin's and others so uh, but we should be on that side of the game not on the other side
1: well when you talk of weapons that impact civilians to an incredible degree and that outlast by a long time period the actual conflict you could be talking about landmines you could be talking about nuclear weapons
0: and nuclear weapons exactly right yeah and, and, and by the way i mean i'm i'm probably uh, piggybacking on your time and your good humor but i think we have to make a similar statement on increasing Uh, laxity in our control of uh, arms exports in this country. It's ridiculous. I mean, we're now trading with the Saudis uh, while there's this horrible devastation going on in Yemen. Come on, you know. And I know that London, Ontario has a big interest. Well, help them convert to something. If you can make a vehicle that can carry uh, weapons, you can make a vehicle that can also carry water or undertake sort of other explorations. But I just think that there's a kind of a, this country isn't pristine and pure and there's a lot of interest which are really economically dominated and there's nothing wrong with being economically interested but not when it begins to uh, overtake and suppress other values that we that we should honor as Canadians and which we I think we have a certain legacy that we have to continue because there's a lot of people went before us that made a difference and I think right now we're not in the game.
1: You know on the question of Saudi Arabia and exporting weaponized vehicles our values are tested when these economic interests loom large. But it's in those moments that we, we kind of prove who we are. And I've heard the argument that if we don't sell them, someone else will. But I say to that, then we won't be complicit in it. Let someone else be complicit in it. It's a moral question.
0: And furthermore, to work to try to provide a, a degree of uh, shaming and restraints for those who are asylum. You know, it, It's absurd when you think that the economy of the United Kingdom is based on scotch, finance, and arms exports. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy uh, what's going on.
1: It does. When you look at the world stage where we are at with the conversation around nuclear weapons and the conversation around exporting weapons, weaponized vehicles to Saudi Arabia, if Canada doesn't take a strong stand, or in some cases, like in Saudi Arabia is complicit, it makes it, all the easier for other countries to look and say, well, if Canada is willing to do this, then we can do it too. And there's no problem whatsoever. Or if Canada is not willing to take a stand, then we're not willing to take a stand either. And we are in a unique position in some ways that we have the economic strength. And we have certainly, I think, the values among Canadian society to stand up and 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 be more vocal. And I hope that we will be more vocal going forward.
0: Yeah. And we have the skills. We've got the technology. I mean, we really are so privileged and I think that it's not, you know, there's the the whole question of what is your responsibility? And as you know, we, we pioneered the concept of responsibility to protect. Simply saying that uh, regardless of your nationality or your country, or that there is just simply a level of countries earn their sovereignty to the degree to which they protect their citizens. And if they don't protect them, then increasingly... The onus is internationally to provide those kinds of protections, because I think we're, there's nothing sacred about the nation state. It's simply a, a political jurisdiction that enables to do a lot of things, and it's very effective. But increasingly, it's becoming uh, increasingly unaccountable. I come back to my favorite hobby horse, which is parliament. We simply have to get, party, get parliamentarians to start looking at the reform of parliament. Don't rely upon governments to do it, because they have a, an interest in not having parliament be effective. I think parliamentarians in this day and age, I think there would be an expectation that those who are been elected to be the stewards of our parliamentary system should now be much more active in looking at what are the reforms we need, electorally, in terms of accountability, in terms of resources, and uh, to restore a much more active role for parliament, not only in oversight, but also in policymaking.
1: You are speaking my language when it comes to an act of parliament. And I, I would also say there are a number of philosophers that have an impact on one's life. But Thomas Nagel, this idea that, yes, I'm a Canadian, a proud Canadian, but I'm also a citizen of the world and I have to conduct myself in, 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 in keeping with that, I think is really powerful, too, especially in the course of, of, of this conversation.
0: It does take champions. I guess that's the one lesson I learned being in government and being in foreign affairs, is that things aren't going to happen if there aren't champions putting their full resources and capabilities to work. And that's what we did. I mean, I'm not saying that this is the search for the Holy Grail, but when we did the landmines treaty, that was a full-out kind of full-notty effort by Canadians. We recruited parliamentarians, ex-parliamentarians, diplomats, civil society groups, and we did kind of an Amway sales around the world. Our, our embassies. We're out there knocking on doors. And we put our diplomats to work, not just you know, sending telegrams about how bad the world is, but put them to work. Uh, the prime minister was heavily engaged. Several of my colleagues in cabinet were heavily engaged. Uh, Art Eglinton, uh, David Cullinette, people like that were really terrifically involved in that. And so we, we it really was a collective effort. And I think that, again, uh, because we, we all recognized, and not only was there a direct interest, because we had been through cases where we saw in the Balkans were. Canadian soldiers were being dismembered and killed. We saw it around the world, but particularly we saw there was an impact on civilians. You couldn't have a development project in Cambodia until you got rid of several million landmines. That's still going on. The Canada Landmine Foundation, which is one of the products of the treaty, is still working in Cambodia. There's no support from our government anymore, but that's okay. I think there's enough Canadian support. The Rotary Clubs in Ontario are being hugely effective in doing that. As we're hunkering down and frustrated over restrictions, I think the idea that there's something beyond us, that we can get involved as Canadians in doing things, it could be a real tonic uh, for this country.
1: I hope so. And I have to say, I appreciate anyone who is able to manage a life in politics for as long as you have and come out of it and still do really important work with the World Refugee Council and more. I, as a younger parliamentarian, certainly value that. I think you set a really strong example, a hard example to live up to, but a strong example all the same. And I I really appreciate that you continue this advocacy into your post-parliamentary career as well. And, And I hope that Canadians listen, but I hope that our government listens as well and that we look back to that Canadian history of advocacy. Thanks, Lloyd. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for the invitation and I will stay in touch.
1: Sounds good. Take care. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.